Amen. Well, what a glorious image and look at Christ and His great work and a reminder from the Apostle Paul that we proclaim Him, we admonish, and we teach because we want to present every man, we want to be presented ourselves to be perfect and complete in Christ. That, that is the, the goal of the Christian life, to be presented to God as perfect and complete in Christ. And one way that we do that is by the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. That is how the Lord sanctifies us. That is how He builds up His people. So if you have your Bible, open with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses um, 16 through 26. This will take a number of weeks to get through uh, this passage of Scripture. It's really a, a monumental passage of Scripture. It, it is a well-known and oft-quoted passage of Scripture where we see the fruit of the Spirit. If we are in Christ, we will display the fruit of the Spirit, so every believer should know these verses. This, this set of verses tells us ultimately what the Spirit-filled life should look like. So if you want a title um, for the next four weeks or so, it will be The Spirit-Filled Life. Part one today, The Spirit-Filled Life. And we want to look at the necessity of being filled with the Spirit and how that looks, how that works itself out both individually and corporately. This has individual aspects to it, and it has corporate aspects to it, how we relate to one another. So let's look at our text. Let's read this passage of Scripture, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. So we're going to read Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. We'll read through the end of the chapter. And dear friends, this is the word, the, the true word of the living God. So let's read. Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God." But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. 
May the Lord add blessing to the, pre- to the reading of his word. And now let's go before him in prayer. Father, we come to you now and I hope that you by your spirit will impress upon us the, the great depth of truth before us in your word today. Lord, there's so much to see. There's so much to take hold of. There's so much examination of ourselves to take place. There's so much repentance that is needed. There's so much freedom from the power and the bondage of past sin that we need. Lord, would you take your truth and write it upon our hearts? Lord, would you, by your Spirit, incline our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and respond to the truth as it is plain and evident before us today? Lord, this passage is so clear. The contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit could not be more plain. So, Lord, would you show us that contrast? Would you help us to obey the command to walk by the Spirit? Would you help us to make war against the flesh? Would you help us to fight a victorious battle, and would you help us to walk together alongside of one another as we do that, as we fight this battle, as we walk this course, as we wage this war? Would you, by your Spirit, put strength in us? Would you, Lord, by your Spirit, search and know our hearts and reveal our sin to us? Lord, would you grant us humble hearts that are ready and eager and desiring to receive and apply your truth. Lord, it is the greatest wonder and the greatest miracle in the world that you would save sinners, that you would call sinners out of darkness to your marvelous light. And it is no less a wonder that those of us who were enslaved to the flesh can have victory in and through Christ. It is is a great wonder, Lord, that we can be conformed to the image of the Son who was holy and perfect and blameless. Not because we make a great effort, Lord. Not because we memorize enough scripture or fight hard enough against sin, but because your spirit powerfully works in and among us. So, Lord, that is our desire today as we sit under the authority of your word. This is not the authority of a man or of a pulpit. It is the authority of your eternal truth. Lord, would you write that truth upon our hearts and glorify your name among us today. pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as you remember, we are in a section in Galatians chapter 5, kind of chapter 5 and chapter 6. We're in the section where Paul is writing of the believer's freedom in Christ. And this is a freedom that is not given to us to serve our selfish desires. 
This is not a freedom that is given us that we might indulge the flesh. This is a freedom by which we battle against the flesh. This is a freedom by which we love one another, and in so loving one another, we display the glory of Christ. How do we walk properly in the freedom that we have been given in Christ? We walk by the Spirit. We must walk continually and increasingly by and in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. As I've already mentioned, we'll look at this section of Scripture, Lord willing, over the next four weeks because there's so much truth. There, there is so much that we can take from these verses to examine our lives, to strive after in our lives, and then to apply so that we might grow in godliness, that we might be presented before God as a complete, a perfect, and a mature man. In this section, Paul gives us a command in verse 16. In verses 17 and 18, he outlines this great conflict between the flesh and the spirit. In verses 19 through 23, we see the contrast of the lives of those who are in Christ and those who serve the power of evil and their flesh. In verse 24, we see the conquest of the Christian's life, that we are victorious. We belong to Christ, and belonging to Christ, we have crucified the flesh within ourselves. Then lastly, in verses 25 and 26, we see the companionship of this walk, that we walk and that we war together alongside of one another to walk by the Spirit, to be made like Christ. So in these five headings that we'll look at over the next number of weeks, there's really a very clear theme and thesis that Paul writes of here. We must prove that we belong to Christ. Make that very personal. You must prove that you belong to Christ. You do that by living a Spirit-filled life that displays the fruit of the Spirit and wages a victorious war against your flesh. Prove that you belong to Christ by defeating the power of the flesh, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want one nutshell wrap-up of these verses, that's it. Prove that you belong to Christ by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a nutshell, and there's so much here, so we're going to crack that nutshell and dive in today. Firstly, point number one, we want to look at the command. The command in verse 16, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, again, just thinking about this in context, in verses 13 through 15, we see this picture of those who abuse their freedom in Christ. Verse 15 says, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. If you're going to abuse your freedom, that is what you will do. You will bite and devour and consume one another. Paul says, But I say, don't do that. Don't do that. I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. The Christian life throughout Scripture is described and defined 
as a walk. If we wanted to take the rest of our time together looking at, looking at instances in Scripture where, where we see the word for walk, we could spend 45 minutes doing that very easily. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says that we have died with Christ, that we are raised with him in his resurrection, and that happens so that we might walk in newness of life. In Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, behave, or literally he says, to walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Walk properly by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul wrote of he and his companions, and he said, we walk by faith and not by sight. The book of Ephesians, if you're familiar with that book, you're familiar with, with the Christian life constantly throughout that being described as a walk. Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling." That is, walk in a manner worthy of being called a disciple and a follower of Christ. Chapter 5 begins by telling us to walk in love. In verse 2 and verse 8, he says, walk as children of the light. In verse 15, he says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, behave, or again, literally, walk properly toward outsiders, those who are outside of the faith. We start to sum it up. First John 2, verse 6, John says, walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. And then you might be familiar in his second and third epistles, second and third John, John writes there, that he has no greater joy than seeing his fellow saints, his children in the faith, walking in the truth. So walk in the same manner as Christ walked, and walk in the truth. These few verses, again, we could exhaust Scripture over the next hour and look at all the instances of the Christian walk being described in Scripture, but we get a good picture with these references. We're to walk in newness of life. We're to walk properly. We're to walk by faith. We're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're to walk in love. We're to walk as children of light. We're to be careful how we walk and to walk in wisdom. We're to walk properly towards those who are outside the faith. We're to walk just as Christ walked. And lastly, we must walk in the truth. The Christian life is a walk. The Lord thinks much about the walk of his saints. The Lord speaks much about the walk of his saints. The Lord has revealed much in his word about the walk of the Christian. He gives broad instruction as to the progress that we must make as we walk in Christ by the Spirit. So now specifically, let's zone back in on our text here in Galatians 5, verse 16. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. 
Again, we consider this context where he has just talked about the, the selfish desires, the self-centeredness, the, the evil and the wickedness that comes when we don't walk by the Spirit. When we turn our freedom in Christ into an opportunity for our flesh to well up in us and to sin against brothers and sisters. And Paul says, rather than do that, walk by the Spirit. Calvin commented that the ruin of the church, thinking about those who abuse their freedom in Christ, the ruin of the church is no light evil. And whatever threatens the church must be opposed with the most determined resistance. We must fight against ruining the church, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do this? Calvin continued, how is this accomplished? By not permitting the flesh to rule in us. By submitting ourselves, by yielding ourselves to the Spirit of God. Do not abuse your freedom in Christ, but rather walk by the Spirit to build up the body of Christ. The Christian life is to be lived in total submission, total yielding of self and selfish desires to the powerful working of the Holy Spirit of God. That is the Christian life. That is the Spirit-filled life, to say no to yourself and to obey Christ. So we see this overarching command to walk by the Spirit. And if you're like me, and I hope you are in this one instance at least, Let's ask the question, you might be asking yourself the question, how do we do this? How do we walk by the Spirit? Well, to understand that, firstly, we have to understand exactly what the Scripture is telling us here. The Scripture is talking about a walk in Christ as a progress, as a progressive, ongoing journey. As we often say, we will not, we have not arrived. In this life, that will not happen. You are on a journey. Peter says that we are sojourners. We are aliens on a journey to eternity. Are you a sojourner on a journey to eternity in heaven with the Lord? Or are you a sojourner on your way to eternity in hell? So if this walk is a progressive walk, walk whereby the Spirit's influence in our hearts and our minds must be increasing, we have to dig deeper. We have to think and understand what that looks like and how we bring that to, to take place in our lives. MacArthur's commentary was helpful. He said, the life walked by the Spirit is the Christ-like life. The life walked by the Spirit is the Christ-like life, the saturation of a believer's thoughts with the truth and love and the glory of his Lord and the desire to be like him in every way. The Spirit-filled life is a life that looks like Christ. It is a life that is consumed with Christ, a life that is devoted to Christ, a life, as MacArthur said, that wants to be like Christ in every way. It's not a life that wants to look like Christ in most ways, but you hold back this one or these two areas of your life. It is the desire to look like Christ in every way. How do we do that? How do we strive to look like Christ in every way? We're just asking questions on top of question. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. To desire to be like Christ is to let his word dwell in you. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, Jesus said, you will bear much fruit. 
If you want to be like Christ, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. To put it another way, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the mind of the Spirit. To be filled with the mind of the Spirit is to know His Word. To be filled with the Spirit, you must know the truth of Scripture. You must read it. You must memorize it. You must study it. You must meditate on it. If you want to live a Spirit-filled life, know your Bible. From front to back, from Genesis to Revelation, the apostles, the prophets, the historical books, the narratives, the gospel, know them all. Know God's word. Be in the truth. To walk by the Spirit is to be sanctified. To be sanctified is to walk in the truth. You know what Jesus prayed in John 17, 17. Sanctify them, O Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, dear friends, Paul exhorts us in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to walk by the Spirit. As often the case in Scripture, we see a positive command here, and it's followed by one with negative implications. But I say walk by the Spirit, and then, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So there's this this war going on. We'll see this in, in, in verses 17 and 18 in a moment where we see the spirit and the flesh in opposition to one another. And so as we think about, about walking by the spirit, one definitive understanding of walking in the spirit is that you are not walking in the flesh. If you walk by the spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So if we want to ask ourselves a diagnostic question here as to whether or not we are walking in the Spirit, ask yourself, am I carrying out the desires of my flesh? To be led by the Spirit, we must be in the habit of refusing the sinful desires of our flesh. Paul set this contrast beautifully in the book of Titus. Titus 2, verse 14, he said, To deny ungodliness... Deny worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That is, is the difference between those who walk in the Spirit and those who walk in the flesh. Those who walk in the Spirit live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Those who walk in the flesh give themselves to worldly desires and sinful fleshly temptations. The Apostle John puts it very bluntly for us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. He said, No one who is born of God practices sin, because his, God's seed, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. The one who knows God does not practice sin, period, end of discussion. To habitually sin, to walk in sin without repentance, without ever checking up, without a, a changed life at some point, shows according to Scripture, not according to me, shows according to Scripture that you do not know God. That's the importance, and we'll get to this in a minute, but that's the importance of walking by the Spirit, because in walking by the Spirit, you don't carry out the desires of the flesh. If you practice fleshly 
things, you prove only one thing, and that is that you do not know God. You are not born of God. So Paul says that the Spirit-filled life is one that heeds this command. Again, we're talking about the Spirit-filled life as our overarching heading to verses 16 through 26. To live the Spirit-filled life, we must heed the command to walk by the Spirit. And in that, we must not walk according to the desires of the flesh. We must make war against sin, and we must strive to live in submission to the power of the Holy Spirit. And this analogy of war leads us into the second point. In verses 17 and 18, we see that our Christian life is one of great struggle. It is a war. So let's consider then, secondly, the conflict. We've seen the command. Now let's look at the conflict. Verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So in verse 17, we see two valiant forces fighting against one another. The the flesh sets itself against the spirit. The spirit sets itself against the flesh. These two are in opposition to one another. This is the great war that goes on in your life. This is the great temptation, the great war that goes on in your heart when you face temptation. Is the flesh setting itself against the spirit of God within you if you are a believer. And there's some, there are a couple things that we have to know, that we have to understand about this conflict so we rightly wage war. Firstly, we must know that this is a winning battle. And if you friends are like me and you battle sin every single day, when you hear that statement, what a joyful, what a glorious reminder it should be that you, as one who are in Christ, are fighting a winning battle. 1 John 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is the Spirit of God who is in you than the spirit of evil that is in the world. 1 John 4, the context there is talking about those who will not confess Christ as Lord. And John tells his reader that greater is the Spirit of God than the spirit of evil that rules this present world. The Lord has given some level of dominion to Satan and his minions and his evil forces and schemes in this life. But John says, take heart, dear saint, because greater is he who is in you than the one who rules in the world. So there's this assuring promise that the Spirit of God overwhelms and overcomes the spirit of the world, the spirit of evil. So we must fight this battle, friends, knowing that we will win. We are overcomers, not because of something we do, but because we serve a glorious Christ, and he puts his spirit within us. But knowing that, we also must know that that does not mean that this is not a battle. Knowing that we will win does not absolve us from the duty to make war against sin. So that's the the second important thing to understand. Yes, we will win, but you must fight. You must wage war because the flesh in you, Paul says, is in opposition to the spirit who is within you. 
So you must fight. Your remaining flesh will make war against the Spirit of God, so you must allow that Spirit to work in you and make war against your flesh. You fight back, friends, by putting on the armor of God, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace. You take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So you are in a battle. You will win that battle, but you must fight. You must wage war. Now consider what Paul says here. He says, the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. The spirit and the flesh are at war so that you may not do the things which you please. Now, I want to give you the first clear um, interpretation of that. And we must get this first one before we can consider the second one. The spirit is in you so that you do not do what your flesh desires. Period. End of statement. The spirit is in you making war against your flesh. And praise God for that. If not for that spirit you and I would walk and run headlong into every sin imaginable. However, there's another implication here, another, another interpretation that we need to pull out of this statement that is really a glorious truth when we consider it. We see that we have this remaining flesh in us that wages war against that which we want to do as those who are in Christ. We want to obey Christ. We have our flesh still waging war. It is still not wanting us to do that which we desire. And you say, why is that good news? That's good news because it drives us to moment-by-moment dependence upon the Spirit of God. If you didn't have your flesh still in you, you would be perfected. You would go to glory already because there would be nothing else that the Lord would need to do to you to prepare you for glory. Your flesh within you wages war against your desire to do right, so you will fall on your knees begging the Spirit of God to fill you, to strengthen you, to help you, and to deliver you. So this war that you fight, though it will beat you down, you will fall to temptations, you will be broken. By God's grace, He will throw you on your face when you are in sin. But that Spirit of God is in you to battle that temptation. And that spirit comes to you in your great moment of need. You must walk in dependence upon the spirit. So what is our response to that? I would encourage you when you think about this great battle being waged in the spiritual realms between the spirit of evil and the spirit of God, when you think about those things, For one, fall to your knees in humility, knowing that you can't win that battle. But I think even beyond that, what I want to encourage you to do is see that battle and long for heaven. See that battle that rages within you and around you, and let that direct your heart to eternal glory, eternal glory holiness, eternal perfection, eternal righteousness, because if you are in Christ, 
you will fight this battle. This battle will take all the strength that you can muster. Of course, we walk and we battle with the power that Christ works in us through His Spirit. But nevertheless, it takes all the strength that you can muster. So as you fight that battle, friend, long for heaven. Long for that day when you throw off your sin and are made to be perfect. Where you are presented to God complete, mature, and perfect in and through Christ. As you long for the day when the battle is over, surely the Spirit of God will come to you and strengthen you. If you long for this day when your battle with sin is over, surely, dear saint, you will pursue holiness in this life. If you have an eternal mindset, if your eyes are fixed on eternity, where you will go to be like Christ. First John says that if, if you hope in Christ, you will purify yourself just as he is pure. Because you want to be like the one who saved you. So fight and battle and wage war against the flesh. Strive to walk in the power of the Spirit. And Paul sets forth another conflict that we see going on. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here because it kind of goes with the overarching theme of Galatians. In verse 18, he says, But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. We've studied at length over the last number of months the custody, the, um, the tutorship, and the slavery that the law brings to those who are not yet in Christ. The law served to confine us, to restrain our behavior, and even to agitate the desires of our flesh and our sin. But in Romans 8, verse 15, Paul writes that you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received adoption as sons. If you are in Christ, if you are under the Spirit, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law, but you are under grace because you are in Christ who is the perfect fulfillment of the law. If you are in Christ, the law has been fulfilled on your behalf, and it was fulfilled on your behalf by a man named Jesus. He went to a cross. He was nailed to that cross. He was hung there and left to die, and as his dying breaths were taken, the full wrath of a holy God. His eternal Father was poured out on him on your behalf. And so if you are led by the Spirit, if you have come to Christ with faith and repentance, then you have the Spirit in you, and you are led by the Spirit, and you are no longer under the law. The Spirit gives you victory over sin. The Spirit soothes the agitation that your sin would, would know if you were under the law. The, the law serves to only lead you into more and more sin because you see your sin, and when you are not in Christ, you are driven by evil desires. So, friends, you are not under law, but you are under grace. You are led by the Spirit. You are not under the law. Your flesh and your spirit are at war with one another so that you are in moment by moment dependence upon the Spirit of God to lead you in righteousness. 
So as we do this, as we are led by the Spirit, as we walk by the Spirit, something happens. Something changes. When you are led by the Spirit, something changes about you and within you. And the next point that Paul makes as we look at the third heading briefly today, the next point he makes is the great contrast. So we see the contrast between the fruit of the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh. Picking up at verse uh, 19, going through verse 23, Paul says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and, if that list was not enough, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That, that is one side of the coin, the deeds of the flesh. But verse 22, he continues, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So again, to look at the, the overarching view of this, the Spirit-filled life consists of the command. We've seen the conflict. Now briefly, we'll look at the contrast. There are multiple ways to consider this contrast, one of which we'll do today, and the other of which we'll look at over the next couple of weeks. Today, just consider kind of a high-level overview, just kind of set the stage, and then next two Sundays, we'll look um, in more depth, Lord willing, at the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So just from this high level, the first thing that we must see in verse 19, Paul says the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're clear, they're manifest, they are apparent, and they're openly recognized. That is what marks the one who does not walk by the Spirit. They walk in deeds of the flesh that are evident, that are clearly known. One who walks in the flesh can be easily spotted and identified if we take God's Word at face value. You know, I think that's, that's one challenge that we have as believers, that when we see things like what Paul writes here, it is crystal, crystal clear. But we don't want to take these things at face value because it will convict you. It will convict me to take these things exactly as they're written on the pages of Scripture. But Paul says these things are evident in those who do not walk by the Spirit. So the question we must ask, the thing that we must seek to understand in our own lives. I can't do this for you, and you can't do this for me. It's the Spirit of God working in you and the Spirit of God working in me. Ask the question, are these things evident in your life? Are these things evident in my life? Are they clearly and often apparent and manifest in the way that we live from day to day? Now, these things are important because of what Paul says in verse 21. These things I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why we kind of get a little bit nervous when we talk about really taking these things at face value. Because Paul says that if these are evident, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
If the practice of your life is to be immoral, impure, sensual, idolatrous, sorceress, um, in enmity or strife or jealousy or having outburst of anger or being in constant disputes and dissensions and factions and being filled with envy, being drunk, being a carouser, or things like those. If that is evident in your life, on the authority of Scripture, you are not in Christ, and I beg you and I plead with you to repent of your sin and come to faith in Christ. Because if those things are evident, Scripture says you are not a partaker of Christ. Come to Him in repentance. We cannot avoid the implication here that if you're marked by sins, by these sins, by walking in the deeds of the flesh, that you're not in Christ. We cannot avoid that. As much as it would be easier, you know, next week when we go out into the community, as much as it would be easier to kind of gloss over someone's life and say, well, you know, you're saying the right thing, so yeah, you you might be in Christ. Well, no, if you're talking to someone who's immoral or impure or, or idolatrous or full of disputes and anger, you must tell them the truth. You must tell them what Scripture says, and if these deeds are evident, they're not in Christ. Tell them the truth. Do it for their eternal good, that they might see their sin and come to Christ. So now we must be very pointed, okay? This is very important. I think we can all agree on that now. This is very important. So we must ask ourselves, at what point do sins become evident in our lives? At what point are are we practicing sin in our lives? At what point... You know, Paul says that those who practice such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. At what point are you practicing a sin rather than falling into temptation? Now, it's the most important question we can ask here, I think, just in this little point, in this little point of our sermon. How much constitutes a practice? Unfortunately, or I think actually fortunately, Scripture doesn't say. Scripture does not tell us how many times you might sin, you might commit a specific sin and be a practicer of that sin. So does that mean that if you lose your temper and you have an outburst of anger four times a week, you're practicing the sin of anger? But if you only do it three times, it's just you're falling into temptation. No, Scripture doesn't tell us that because Scripture emphasizes holiness of life. Scripture is not a set of rules that you follow, but rather it gives you the direction that your life must go. Again, back to the start, it is a walk. It is a progressive sanctification where you are increasingly defeating sin day after day, week after week, and year after year. The ramifications of getting this wrong are eternal. If you walk around thinking that I only occasionally commit sin... I don't practice these sins. If that is where you land, but you're actually practicing sin, the ramifications are eternal. You will die and go to hell if you don't come to Christ. So what is the Christian's response? Okay, we should be trembling at this point. We should be shaking in our boots. You should be uncomfortable. I should be uncomfortable. Because how much constitutes a practice? How often do you sin 
that now you must step back and say, oh my goodness, am I practicing these things? Am I truly going to inherit the kingdom of God? How do we respond then? Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. King David, a a man well known for his horrific sin. King David prayed in Psalm 139 at the end of that glorious psalm. He said, search me, O God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And see if there be any hurtful or any grievous or any sinful ways in me. And if so, Lord, lead me in the way of eternal life. Search me, O God. When's the last time you prayed that? When is the last time that you prayed that? Not because you're too lazy mentally to think about sins to repent of. When is the last time that you were so desperate for the Lord to search and carve out the deepest caverns of your heart that you said, search me, O God, O great, holy, mighty one who knows all things, search me, and if there be any sinful way in me, lead me in the way of repentance. Lead me to brokenness. Draw me out of my sin. Lead me to the path of eternal life. When is the last time that you prayed that? When is the last time that you meaningfully prayed that? We don't ask the question how much you can sin before it becomes your practice. You must ask yourself, how holy can I be? How much more can I look like Christ? Where is the sin in my life that I can repent of and seek by the power of God to defeat and overcome? If you want to be spared the eternal wrath of God, you must do that. You must repent of your sins. So while these deeds of the flesh are evident, while they will be clearly seen in those who walk in the flesh, There's a flip side of this, and and thanks to the Lord, we'll get to look at this again in the coming weeks as well. But there's a flip side, the the fruit of the Spirit. These things will commonly and increasingly be seen in the lives of those who walk in Christ. Paul says that for those who display the fruit of the Spirit against those people, against those things, there is no law. You are walking in Christ. You are fulfilling Christ your duties. You are displaying these fruits that are laid out. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that these are not actually multiple fruits. They are individual characteristics that will be the outworking of our lives. But Paul's very clear here. He says the fruit of the Spirit, this singular fruit of the Spirit, is all of these things. If you have the Spirit of God in you, all of these things will be present. They will be increasing. Now, you may not love perfectly. You may not be perfectly joyful or perfectly patient or perfectly gentle, but all of those things will be in you. They'll be growing and evident in you if you're in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is not like the spiritual gifts. You know, we see that spiritual gifts are given in various ways, in various degrees, with various gifts being given to different Christians. The fruit of the Spirit is not like that. You are given all of the fruit of the Spirit because it's one fruit. You have God's Spirit in you, and the Spirit works out in and through you. 
These virtues won't always or they may never be equally apparent and, and evident in your life. But they always will be there. They always will be increasing. So we've only taken a glance at this third point, but this is where we're going to drop anchor for today. And we'll, we'll come back and dive into these things because there's so much to see when we consider the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So we'll come back to these things in the, in the week to come as long as that is the Lord's will. So we've begun to consider the Spirit-filled life, that we walk in submission to the Spirit. We know that there is a great conflict raging on the flesh against the Spirit. We, we know that there is a great contrast between the lives of those who walk in the flesh and those who are filled with the Spirit. And we know that Scripture gives us a command, the command to walk by the Spirit. We must biblically examine our lives to see whether the deeds of the flesh are evident or if we are walking in and displaying the fruit of the Spirit. You know, we, the, the closing part of our book that we're doing on Wednesday nights, that 10th chapter ended with the statement that you cannot get Christian fruit without the Christian root. Now, that's real difficult for me to say, but it's so true. In light of this, you cannot get Christian fruit. Your life will not display the fruit of the Spirit if you are not rooted and grounded and alive in Christ. And again, there are eternal ramifications to that. If you don't know Christ, run to Christ in faith. Forsake your sin by the power of the Spirit. Repent, turn away from those things and believe that Jesus came that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, that he has ascended to heaven, and now he sits at the right hand of the Most High, interceding on behalf of the saints. Believe that about Jesus and ask him to forgive your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So may we walk by the Spirit. May we not give ourselves to the desires of the flesh. May we walk in such a way that shows this great contrast, that we are displaying the fruit of the Spirit because we are walking in the grace of God by faith in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and with great personal effort. We labor, but it's the grace of God at work in us. May we, as Jesus said, let our lights shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works. And they don't see our good works and say, oh, what a, what a great guy John is. What a great guy Ben is. What a great guy Clark is. Jesus said, may they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. May that be our heart's desire, to walk, showing the fruit of the Spirit, not to our credit, not to our praise, not for our glory, but so that they may see, they, the world, may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's close in prayer. Father, we 